This is our last psalm for a little while. We'll be getting into our uh, D group reading next week. And as I've, as I've told you leading up to this, I'll, I'll just remind you again that my preaching on Philippians will not match exactly what we're doing in connect groups because I'm going to go back and finish up the last half of chapter 3 of Philippians and then work through chapter 4. That's where I left off last Sunday a year ago. Uh, the week before Laura, that's what we were supposed to be, that's what we were in. And then this Sunday, we were going to have the Lord's Supper, and a hurricane messed us up. And today, we were going to have the Lord's Supper, and a hurricane messed us up. Um, it's, I, I don't like this broken record that we seem to be on, but uh, that's the way it is. Uh, hence all the songs about the blood this morning. They were preparing us for that later on, but rather than change all the songs, we just sang about the blood anyway because it hadn't lost its power. Uh, so we'll, we'll begin Philippians next week, your, your readings, and we'll look at that. And in two weeks, we'll have our Lord's Supper, fellowship, jambalaya, lunch, and maybe, just maybe, this building will be finished by the time we get there. Um, I, yeah, I know, let's clap hesitantly, um, because I've said that for two months now. Let's be honest. Um, but uh, the walls should be done by the end of this week, and the flooring should be done next week, depending on the ability to get the, the subfloor done. That, that's going to be the hard part. The carpet's the easy part. It's building it up that's going to be the more difficult part. So that's what we're doing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we're finishing up with Psalm, uh, our, our little interlude of Psalms this week with Psalm 17. Uh, a psalm very likely of David, and I, I've entitled it, The Innocence of the Accused. Uh, that's the theme of this psalm, and as I was working on it this week, I had a different title. I, I was leaning toward cry out to God, because that's what David is doing here, and the truth is, that's what David does in most of the psalms. Most of the psalms are cries out to God in some, in some manner. So I began to think about, okay, is that what the psalm is about? Is that really the, 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 the topic of the psalm? And that's where we have to begin. And we tend, and I've done this in preaching the psalms just along the last few years, we, we tend to spiritualize passages too quickly. And we especially do that with the psalms. We go into it thinking, okay, what is this saying to us today? And that is valid and vital that we do that with any scripture that we uh, come across, that we read. But we can do it too quickly. We have to deal with the text as it is first. What is the psalm saying? Well, the, the topic of the psalm is certainly God crying out to, uh, rather David crying out to God. He is praying for something in particular but the gist of the psalm is the fact that David is being attacked. He's being accused of things that he is innocent of. That's the theme of the psalm. So we need to deal with that first, and then we move to any greater truths that the psalm might have for us. So that's, that's where we want to begin this morning. And as we read this psalm, and hopefully... Uh, I, I, You've read it this week. It was part of your, your reading uh, for this week. Hopefully you already read it, so you've kind of gotten the idea of it. But let's read it again. Psalm 17. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you. For you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do, by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. 
Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They're like a lion, eager to, a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion, in this, whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied, and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. So as you see, when we read through this psalm, we, we should get, first and foremost, David's being accused and he didn't do it. That's, that's the first place that we should come to. And then there's always the kicker at the end, or at least almost always in the psalms. But that's at the end, so we've got to get there before we can talk about it. So let's talk about what he's doing first. He's, this is divided into four sections. Uh, some of your Bibles will have that divided out uh, that way. And the first section is verses 1 through 5, and it's a prayer of innocence on the part of David. David is stating his innocence to the Lord. He tells him, hear the just cause, pay attention to my cry, listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. It, David is not saying here that he is perfect, but that he is innocent regarding this accusation. David would be the first to say, as many of the Psalms point out, that he is not <laughs> perfection personified. Uh, far from it, as a matter of fact. But in this case, in this instance, there is an accusation apparently about something that he said. He's talking a lot about his mouth and a lot about his speech and a lot about the things he says and Anybody who speaks a lot for a living, especially, and a king would, and a pastor does, uh, 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 words can be taken out of context, can be misconstrued. Uh, I had to apologize just last week for some things that I said to someone, and, and it, they were overheard, and my intent behind what I said was not what was taken, but if you just take what was heard just those words themselves, I can totally see the, the hurt and the offense that those words caused. So I had to apologize for those words because I say a lot of words. None of y'all are surprised by that. But when you say a lot of words, some of them aren't going to come out right. And in this case, it happened. I was technically innocent from the intent, but I had said those words. David here is saying, I didn't say anything. Or at least that's the implication. He certainly did not intend what some folks are saying, what they are accusing him of. And we don't know what it was. We don't know the context. We don't know anything about it, except he's talking a lot about words. And he makes a claim here that God knows he's innocent. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You've tested my heart. You've examined me. You tried me, and you found nothing evil. I mean... David is laying out a, a, a tremendous case for his innocence. He could have easily said, y'all didn't hear that. Y'all know that's not true. I got a buddy over here that says I didn't say it, or I got some friends back here that say you're, you're, you're misunderstanding. But David goes straight to the top. God is my witness. I did not say these things. Let's, let's take just a little bit of application right here. Is, is your life such that you can call God as a witness to your innocence? Is there something, are there anything, is there anything, is there, are there accusations, are there concerns, but you can say, you know what, talk to God about it because he knows I didn't do it. Of course, now we can say that and not be true, right? In this case for David... We are presented, it is presented as truth. He said, God knows I'm innocent of this. God knows I have not made these uh, 
statements or said these things. He's tested me. And he says in verse 4, concerning what other people do, concerning what people do, so I'm not just talking about what I have done, but all these other people too. By the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths, talking to God. My feet have not slipped. David says he has set his life to be innocent. Again, we know David did not succeed in this all the time. There were times, just like you and just like me, where he set his life to be sinful and he was very successful at it. But as a whole, hopefully like you and hopefully like me, we set our lives to be innocent. We set to live as Christ has called us to live. And he gives us really three ways very quickly here in verses 4 and 5 of how he has set his life to be innocent. First, he controls his own mouth. He's already told us that at the end of verse 3. I I have determined that my mouth will not sin. He's done his best to control his mouth. Not say the first thing that comes to his head, Michael. Um, Not to type the first thought that he has in response to something. Michael. He controls his mouth. He has set his life to say, and, and maybe he knew it was a weakness. And that's, that's the problem with sarcastic people or people that, that think of a comeback quickly. It's, it's the controlling of that. And maybe he knew himself. So he said, I've got to put a lock on this and, and control it. But he didn't just control his mouth. He controlled who influenced him. In verse 4, he says, Concerning what people do by the words from your lips, God, based on what you have told me and what you've commanded me, I've avoided the ways of the violent. Or some versions say the robber. Same idea. David controls who influences him. He doesn't hang out with the people who do these things, who use their mouths for violence. He's careful about the company he keeps. Bad company influence, corrupts good character. There we go. There's the word I couldn't come up with. I got all of them except corrupts. Bad company corrupts good character, and David knew that. If I hang out with the gossipy, lying, slandering people, I'm going to be a gossipy, lying, slandering people. So he controls who influences him. He doesn't hang out with those who are violent with their speech. And thirdly, he shows us in verse 5, he says, My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. He he follows after God. Actually, he uses a word here, uh, he, he tracks with God. He's on God's track. And later on, he's going to use the same wording again later on uh, uh, in, in a different part of the passage to kind of bring us back to that verse 5. But when he says, my steps are on your paths, my feet have not slipped, we should hear some echoes of, of uh, previous passages. We should hear echoes of Proverbs. Uh, David's son writing, Uh, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We hear echoes of Psalm 1-1 where the psalmist, David, says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. David saying in this little passage that those things I don't do. I'm, I'm listening to the first song in the the songbook of Psalms. I'm, I, I, I get it. He follows after God. He has set his life to be innocent. And in this case, at this moment, among, uh, based on this accusation, he is. Then he goes on to a prayer of acknowledgement. His prayer of innocence, Lord, I didn't do it. You know I didn't do it. I have set my life to be an I didn't do it sort of life. But let me state now that I acknowledge you, God. I'm innocent. You're great. I call on you, God. Verse 6, I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. David knew he had 
really only one recourse for protection. He had only one recourse for vindication. He could only go to God. In this section, these three, four verses are that prayer of acknowledgement that God is in control. We see first that he has faith in God's answer. Verse 6, I call on you because you will answer me. He has faith that God is going to do something about it. God is going to speak to him in this situation. God is going to respond. And that's who he goes to. In the midst of his attack, in the midst of what's going on, he turns to the Lord. A little quick application for us today. In the attack, in the false accusation, is your go-to response to take it to God or to take it to social media and the gossip circuit? How do you respond to those attacks that come on you? And we all, we all have them. It's various times, various situations from different people or, or, or different uh, uh, situations. Yet, what is our response to those? Can, can we do anything about them by spewing it to someone else? The answer is almost always no. I'll go ahead and say it's always no. And David knew that. David knew, and we don't know what he did in the background. We're not, we don't know who he talked to about this, what advisors he used. But the record that we have is David going to God and saying, God, you know this is the case about me, number one, and I know this is the case about you, that you are going to take care of this situation. You're going to answer it. But then he has three imperative requests. Now, that's an odd Thing, uh, an imperative request, an imperative as a command, and a, a request as an ask for. So he's demanding he ask for. He's, he is being very forward in asking God in, in this way. I, I would say it's not forward, it's bold and confident to have this sort of imperative request. He asks God or tells God to hear him to display his wonders, and to protect him. First of all, he says, Lord, hear me. I call on you because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. The truth of the matter is, in times of distress, in times of trouble, in times of attack, sometimes we just want to be heard. We want people to hear what's going on. And, and that's why we go to social media. That's today how we would do it. That's why we go to the gossip circuit. We tell our friends, we tell people, this is, can you believe this is happening to me? We just want them to hear us and to commiserate with us. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's why we put it out there because we like the, 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 the sad faces, sad face emojis and all that. And it makes us feel better. And that's understandable that we would do that. But that need to be heard is not answered by friends, ultimately. It is not satisfied, let me say, by friends, ultimately. That need to be heard can only be satisfied when God hears us, that's what David understood. And so we take our concerns, we take our attacks, and we take those things to him because we especially need to know that the one with all the power hears us. There, usually, this is a broad brush, so forgive me, but usually when we go to friends with our concerns we're doing it to get people on our side we we want them to be mad at the person or people we're mad at too can you believe that oh gosh yes i can believe that i don't like those people either or no i didn't couldn't believe that but now i do i don't like them now you know that makes us feel good misery loves company but they can't do anything about it and let's be honest we don't want to go to God with these sorts of things because he might show us where we aren't as innocent as we think we are. 
We, we don't have that situation here in this passage. But the truth is that often we avoid going to God with things because he might say, well, that's interesting, you should bring that up. Let's, let's peel back the layers here a little bit. and Let's look at you for a minute, not look at them. And, and then we're all, hmm, I done stepped in it now. And we'd rather not have that conversation. But in truth, that's the best conversation to have, and that's the best one to have the conversation with. Because if a friend says, well, I understand what you're saying, but you know you really did this to bring that on, suddenly they're not so much our friend anymore. At least not for a while. Maybe I'm the only one that's petty like that. The rest of y'all aren't. But we tend to struggle with that. But then he doesn't just stop with the hear me. He moves into the second request, uh, display your wonders. He uses language here in, in this, uh, this passage, display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who, re, who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. He's using language here from the song that they sang on the other side of the Red Sea. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, verses uh, 1 through 18 they, they sang a song of celebration when they had come across this Red Sea on dry ground and the uh, Egyptian army was swallowed up by the sea when it fell in on them. And they sang this song and, and they, spoke, uh, they sang of the, the wonders of God that were displayed and that is what he is asking for here. He's recalling God's work uh, in, in and among his people and he's asking God to show his power right now in this situation. Lord, display your wonders, show your power, show your faithfulness to your people, just like you showed it to, uh, showed your faithfulness to your people as they escaped from Pharaoh. Show your faithfulness to me, a part of your people, now to these people who aren't acting like your people, the, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh in my life. It's what he's asking for. Ultimately, the phrasing of this and, and, and the, the hint back to that song in Exodus 15 is David telling God, asking God to make his name great. It is, it is a, a, a moment of worship. It's not conditional worship. We're not going to say, God, if you do this, I'll worship you. But it's a, a, a small interlude of God, you are worthy of worship. Your name is bigger than this. There's this hint that God is being in some way minimized by what is going on in David's life. And so David prays, hear me, show your power, display your wonders in some translations, in my translation. And then thirdly, protect me. It's a very personal psalm. Protect me, God. Verse 9, protect, I'm sorry, verse 8. Protect me as the pupil. A lot of translations say apple of your eye. It's, this, it's the same part, the center that, of, of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. If I'd planned the music better, we had a song. I can't think of the name of the song, but it's a hide me now. Under your wings. I mean, we've got a song that has that line in it, but I didn't plan that well this week. I was planning for other things. But that's what he's asking for, protection. What David knows is that God cares personally about David in the same way that God cared nationally about Israel. That's why he brings up the wording of crossing the Red Sea. That's why he uses that language. The covenant that God made with Israel is also a covenant that God has made with the individual. When in verse 7, David says, display the wonders of your faithful love, your loving kindness, some of your translations say. That Hebrew word we've talked about before it is chesed, and, and it's not really translatable. We don't have a great word that captures it. We have to use a, a phrase that captures this covenant love that God has for his people, it's the same covenant, for, for his nation rather, it's the same covenant love that God has for individuals that are a part of his family. 
And David is, is reflecting that or reflecting on that and saying, Lord, you have protected the group, now protect the individual. He acknowledges who God is. He acknowledges God's loving kindness. And then thirdly, he prays a prayer of realization. A prayer of realization. Verses 10, 11, and 12. They, the group, are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. This is a realization not of who God is. That's the prayer of acknowledgement right before. This is a realization of who the people are that are coming against him. David understood who was attacking him. He knew who they were. He knew about them. Verse 7 tells us that they were in rebellion against God. Verse 7, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. He is lumping them into that group. Those who are in rebellion against God. He says that they are deadly. Verse 9, my deadly enemies who surround me. Now, we will say sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's bull. Maybe they don't kill me, but words are violent. Words will hurt. Words can cause emotional stress, emotional trauma. And they can be deadly when and if they lead to suicidal thoughts and actions. Words are powerful. They are deadly. And these people with these words in their hands are deadly. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say that they are uncaring. Uh, Actually, that translation, uh, and maybe some of your translations have this, the literal translation is they have closed up their fat. Now, it's, the idea is the fat around their heart. They, it has, they've closed up their heart is really what it's saying. They've, they're hard-hearted. They, they've closed up the part of them that cares. And it no longer, they no longer have emotional, uh, emotion toward David or maybe even anything. And so they are uncaring. They are arrogant, he says. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They are unrepentant. It says they set their eyes or they advance against me in verse 11. Now they surround me. They are determined in verse 11. Or they are ruthless. They throw me to the ground. They're like a lion eager to tear. Like a young lion lurking in ambush. They have one goal and that is to tear David down. David in this prayer of realization, he understood who was attacking him, and he knew their intractability. He knew that they could not be changed. He knew that they would not be changed. They, they, they couldn't be reasoned with. They, he wouldn't be able to change their minds. Conversations wouldn't do it. Sitting down and talking to them, it's not going to help because that is not their concern. They're not concerned. Their, their concern was not understanding. It was destruction. Now, that's not every situation when people misunderstand each other, is it? They're not always violent. They're not always out to hurt or to kill or destroy. Or They're not always lions and young lions. Sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. But in this case, in this situation, it is not a misunderstanding. Their goal is to be violent, to kill, to harm. And there's nothing that can be done about that. They were intractable they were unchangeable and the time had now come to cut them off to be done with them to move on from them and again we don't know who this was is this a foreign power this was was this someone in the court was this family if we read um second samuel we see all of the palace intrigue that went on in david's life especially his later years and the problems with his sons and it was, it, there's a, a huge parenting message in the life of David that we're not going to get into today, but he knew that the time for them was done. The, the time comes with some people who will not change, that they just need to be cut off and you need to be done with them. 
and we put aside their, their comments and their constant uh, attacks. Jesus and Paul said to put such people out of the church. Give them over to their sins for a while. Let the devil have them. And when they are repentant, then they can come back. That's what church discipline is, which most Baptist churches actually have in their constitution. And most Baptist churches never do. Church discipline is never pretty. It's never easy. It's always us against them. It's always he, sh- he said, she said, or he said, he said, or she said, she said, or Sue shells, she shells, or whatever. It's always something like that. But it is biblical. And in this case, we have now uh, gone from... Uh, let, me, uh, let me back up here. Yeah, we, we're going to go from, in verses 10 through 12, of they and they and they, to verses 13 and 14... Him, or verse 13, anyway, him and him and the wicked, and then we go back to plurals. There's a group here and a leader. We, we get the image still of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. There was a leader and there was a group. And the truth of our lives is that at times like this, it may not be that we lose one acquaintance or friend or family member, but we lose multiples. Because we have to put out, cut off a whole bunch of people. But what we often find, and what David, I believe, is uh, showing us and and understanding in his words, is, is that if the Lord will rise up and confront him and bring him down, then the group will lose. If often things stop when the head of the snake is removed. Uh, the whole body twitches for a while, and that head can sometimes be dangerous. I've seen the videos, too, of the, the head cut off of a, a copperhead or a rattlesnake, and you, something hits their mouth and <laughs> clamps down minutes and sometimes an hour after the fact. So it's not over. But it's, uh, it, there are times when that has to be done. That's David's prayer of realization. And finally, David prays a prayer of confidence in verses 13 through 15. So he's prayed his prayer of innocence. God, you know who I am. You know what I have not done. He prays a prayer of acknowledgement. God, I know who you are. I know what you have done in the past and what you can do now. He prays a prayer of realization. I know who this is and what I'm dealing with here and what must be done in the situation. And now he prays a prayer of confidence that God will do, that God will act. Rise up, Lord, confront him, bring him down. I'm in verse 13. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied, and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. David is confident here that God will act. There's no doubt in David's mind in God's ability or his willingness to act on the behalf of uh, on behalf of David. Because he knows something about God, right? He has just just a few verses earlier he has acknowledged who God is. He knows that God's holiness requires him to act against the unholy. We we see that in the very uh, crucifixion That entire act was God acting against the unholy. Not that Jesus was unholy, but that there must be a sacrifice, that sin must be punished, and it must be punished to such a degree as God's own Son dying in our place. The death was necessary. The unholiness of us required God to act. Because God is holy. Well, David knew that just as well as we do. That God cannot sit idly by while unholiness runs rampant. And we will look at the world and we'll say, well, he's certainly sitting by now. Well, he's been doing that if we use that that gauge. He's been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. God is not slow as we would count slowness. But he does not want anyone to perish. So he's giving 
time for people to repent and follow him. But his holiness requires him to act. But God's faithfulness, right? Uh, Verse 7, your faithful love, your loving kindness. God's faithfulness then requires him to act for the best of his people. David knew that as well. David was confident that God is going to act on behalf of his people. God is going to step in when he must, when it is necessary for his people. Now, since you and I aren't God, we can't decide when that is and when that's supposed to be. We trust by faith that God will step in when he needs to. So there's no doubt in in David's mind here that God can and will do it. And he's trusting that. And he uses the language of, of military. Now, he may not really want the people to be killed. Maybe it's just metaphorical. But maybe it is a situation where the best thing that happened is that they would be removed from the situation totally. But he goes on and says, With your uh, hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. What is he saying there? Well, he's asking God to fill them with what they are. Their portion is in this life. He's already said that they're rebelling against God. Now he's saying, this is all they've got. This, This arrogance, this uncertainty, this all this, fill them up with that. If that's what they want, Stuff them with it. It's basically what God said he did in Romans chapter 1. When he says that he gave people over to their depravity. They wanted sin, so God said, fine, you can have it. You know, it's bad to be punished by God. Like discipline, and I mean the spanking, the whatever it is that we get. It's worse to be given up on by God. And then maybe given up on is not the best phrase to use like he ever gives up on us. But, but um, Scripture is pretty clear that there's a time where he quits pursuing. We have hardened our hearts to the point where he no longer even tries to draw us back. That's a worse place to be in than discipline. Giving us over to our depravity is much worse than trying to correct our depravity. And that's what David is asking for here. Give it up. Give them over to it. Let them choke on their fat, uh, their, their fat hearts. Let them choke on that. Let them suffer in their arrogance. Let them be all uh, as, as uh, unforgiving and unholy and ruthless and unrepentant. Let them be all that. And then he goes on to say, David does, that they're raising a generation coming after them that's going to be the same way. Well, he says, let them have it too. Do the same to them. Look at that passage. Uh, From men of the world, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their bellies with what you have in store. Fill them up, Lord. Their sons are satisfied. Fill them up too. And make sure there's enough to go on to the next generation, the third generation. And they leave their surplus to their children. God stopped this in its tracks. We are, we are quick, and, and rightfully so, to say that a, a generation that, that is only 75% for God is going to raise a generation that's only about 40% for God, and then the third generation is only going to be about 10%. Our, our faithfulness to God wanes. If we are not committed, our children will not be committed, and then their children certainly won't be committed. And we're quick to say that, and we should, because as believers, we, we want to raise our children right. But it also flips the other way. Generational curses, if... if, if I'm mean and nasty, generally my children are going to be meaner and nastier. Our sin grows. Our faithfulness shrinks as we move down in generations. Occasionally you have the one that will break the curse, break the cycle, but it's not common and it's not the way it normally works. David sees what's happening and says, stop it. Stop them. And then verse 15 David brings it to a close. He rests in that confidence 
that he has. He says, but I will see your face in righteousness. David knows when he has seen righteousness in life, he's seen God. It's just the, the way it is. When we see good in life, we've seen God working. We've seen things that, that, that are every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. When we see something good, that is a glimpse of God. He knows that. But more importantly, what he's saying is, I will see your face in righteousness. When these things are cleared up, when the, the attack stops, when the generational curse of sinfulness is ended, I will see you. You will be working and I will know it. And then he says, when I wake, when I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. This idea, uh, in verse 3, he said, you examined me at night. We kind of have this idea, this image of him wrestling with this issue overnight. God talking to him and then him going to sleep. And the next morning, he wakes up and, and God will have acted. God will have done something about it. More broadly, he's saying, when this dark night is over, you will have stepped in. You will have acted and ended this. So that's the psalm from David's perspective. This is the, the innocence of the accused. And hopefully we hear some application in there as we move through it, but we need to then, once we understand the psalm, then we step back and say, okay, now what? Well, if we reword those four sections for us, we get some practical application. First, we are told in the New Testament to live a righteous life so that your accusers have no grounds. Live in such a way, the New Testament tells us, that, that they, they can't accuse you of anything. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter in one of his letters says, live in such a way they make fun of you because of your faithfulness to God. Be weird to everybody else because you are faithful to the Lord. That's basically David's prayer. I am faithful. I'm, I'm the odd man out here, and my accusers have no grounds. Secondly, intensify your relationship with God and have such a command of Scripture that in, a, in your time of need, you rest in Him reflexively. What's your go-to? When things happen, when things, in particular, when people attack you, when you are accused falsely, when, when your righteousness is ignored and people attack, what is your response to understand that, that godly people in the Scripture went through the same thing? That Jesus experienced the same thing. He, he was perfect and He was falsely accused. And since ain't none of us perfect, we are certainly going to be falsely accused and attacked. Thirdly, we see with David, and we see in ourselves, be honest about those in rebellion. Those who come against your righteousness. And be honest about what can and cannot be done. And this is one of the hardest parts. Because this is going to be friends of yours. Now, if they're coming against you, maybe you should question, well, how, big, how great of a friend are they? But there will be situations where you will have to put aside and cut off friends and family because of their rebellion against God. And that is never easy. And yet, we are to hand them over and ask God to change their hearts and realize that we can't. We can't do that. But ultimately... When we get to verses 13 through 15, when we get to this point in our lives, when we've handed over to the Lord, we rest in the confidence that God will avenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. It's His job to get back at people. I want to get back at people. I want to hurt those who hurt me. That's my goal. That's my choice. And, and leave me alone. Let me do it. And yet God says that is not your job. David even understood that was not his job, to hand it over to the Lord. And when we do that, 
When we are willing to let God be God and we will be us, we will see His face in righteousness. We will understand more about Him and we will awake in His presence. And it may be tomorrow and it may be the next day and it may be a a spiritualized, metaphorical presence that we feel comfort and calm even in the midst of what's going on. But it could be that we are talking about all eternity. That one day we get to awake in his presence and move all, put all this behind us. And it's over. And it may not be until then that it is over. But that's okay. We will awake in his presence and be satisfied. I like the sound of that word. I like the idea of being satisfied. Whether it's food whether it's the right temperature, but especially in dealing with people, knowing firmly, I don't have to fool with this anymore. It's not, it's not my job. Heck, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy when rebuilding a church isn't my job. You know, I, I'll be happy when that's done. There, there are a lot of things I'll be satisfied with when the time comes, but David is saying... There's going to be a day when I can be satisfied that God's got it all. David had confidence. He could express this confidence because he looked back and he saw God's covenant with Israel. He saw what had happened in the past. We today have confidence because of God's covenant in Jesus. In Christ, we stand innocent when the accuser comes. The accuser will come and say, Did you see what he did, God? Did you see the sin in his life? And God will say, I am aware of the sin being knowledgeable of all things, but I am more aware of the blood of my son that covers him or her. And what I see is my child. My child who's forgiven. The sins are paid for. So the accuser can come all he wants to, but we stand innocent when we are accused. Just like Jesus stood innocent in that courtroom. Just like Jesus stood innocent when he took our accusations on the cross. Our sinfulness. The innocent accused so that the guilty could be innocent and never accused again. That is satisfying. So This morning, maybe you want to know that satisfaction, that that ability to stand accused and know your innocence. And, and maybe the situation that you're thinking of right now, you know there's no way I'm innocent in this. I, I'm, I'm guilty of some and probably not all, but that situation. I'm not talking about the situation right now. I'm talking about your life because you are not innocent in life. You're a sinner and you are in rebellion against God. But the accusations, though accurate now, Hold no weight in the courtroom of God when we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. And you can do that today. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was the innocent who was accused and took your sin. Believe that that is all you need for salvation. No, you can't work for it. You can't earn it. And then choose to make him your Savior this morning. Follow him. Give your life to Him. Place your faith in Him today. And then you can truly be innocent of all the accusations that the accuser would come at you with. And then you, like David, would have the ability, the power, and the intent to say, I am setting my life to follow Him. I am now on track with God. And you can do that today. And I pray that you would. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are the God of revenge, the God of innocence, the God of power. Lord, and while our situations may seem beyond control, and they certainly are beyond ours, there's nothing outside of yours. And Lord, this morning we're talking about interpersonal relationships and how those situations affect us. But God, we we stand here 
amongst death and destruction, our own and, and, and what is probably literally happening right now as we, as we gather here just a few hours away. And you've not lost any of your power. You've not lost any of your ability. Your sovereignty is not one bit affected. We have the same confidence in you for those things as we do in our interpersonal relationships. We thank you that you are in all of them, that we have confidence that we can trust in every situation. And Lord, as we come to you this morning with heavy hearts for our friends and families east, we come very likely with personal needs as well. You care about both of those things. So Lord, I pray this morning we'd lay them both on the altar, knowing that they're not our responsibility. There may be in some of these situations nothing we can do. Now, if there is something we can do, if there are ways we need to change, God, show us that. Let us be honest with you so that we can hear you, that you hear us, and that you correct us where we need to be corrected. But God, where it's out of our hands, let us willingly put it in yours, knowing that you are the one with the power to take care of it all. From gossips to hurricanes, they're all under you. And we trust you with it. More importantly this morning, we trust you with our own lives, our own souls. Lord, our innocence is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ, not on our own ability to uh, maintain that innocence or, or do anything to, to gain it or earn it, but on Jesus. So I pray for the lost this morning. They would come to you. They would accept Jesus as their Savior, repent of their sins, and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The time now is for you to, to pray, to, to give the Lord something, to ask for his help. Maybe it's your time to ask Jesus to save you. Tom will be at the back at our welcome table. Uh, Lee will be at the back door. He'd love, either one of them would love to talk to you about how you can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior or maybe just pray for you if that's your need this morning. But let's stand and let's worship him and let Jesus do business on our hearts this morning and listen to him as he leads.